Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by a partnership between Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Good morning, JR. Good morning, Doug. How are things with you this morning? Things are pretty good. It's the fall and October is here. It's my favorite oh, month of the me year. Me too. Your birthday month. My birthday month, the big 40 coming Woo. up here super soon. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about just uh, you were sharing with me about how, you know, that since you're older than me, much, much older, <laughs> but the arrows out thing. I've just yeah. been really sitting with what does it look like in this season of my 40s to really be giving away more than receiving. Mm. And I'm just super pumped about it. So yeah, I'm looking forward to I love the fact that <clears throat> I get to wear flannels all the time. Now yeah, and, dude. Flannels and hoodies, uh, a little crisp air, yep. a little coffee in a mug, a little mm. football mm. action going on. That's what we're talking about. Man. Do, do people around the, around the country... Like, are they privileged to apple cider or is that just a Northeast thing? There's apple cider us, but we have some good apples here in the state. We do. Really we good do. apple cider donuts. Mm. I mean, I, I think of places, I feel, I feel really sorry for people that live in places like Florida oh. where there's like no, or there's no seasons. Mm. Southern California people, I feel really sorry for you. <laughs> you just don't know what a Pennsylvania fall not yeah. only looks like, like the leaves changing, but smells like, right? There's yes. a fall smell. Oh, it is the best smell. It's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, it's like dirt, earth, and cold air and rain all mixed in. And you would think like that smells terrible, but it's like this sweet, sweet aroma of awesomeness. I actually think there's a spiritual metaphor in there, right? I mean, this idea of dying to ourselves, yes. like the, the death... Of the leaves is what makes the beauty of those leaves so amazing. And it's also the sweet aroma, right? Which is also a biblical metaphor. So j just that idea, that concept of, of smell and sight is happening because of death to self, mm -hmm. right? This death and resurrection. And then spring, of course, being a great resurrection time. So um, yeah, October, actually spiritually, I mean, nature is where I come alive and connect with God. So when I see... The leaves changing and the smell. It. I'm actually more spiritually alive than almost any other month. As funny as that might sound. No, I I fully agree with. You. There's something about those crisp mornings, those cool evenings, even the fact that even on our days they still there's still some heat to some of those days. It's but then again we'll get snow sometimes by yeah, the end of October right. and you're like what is happening? <laughs> yeah, we are super lucky. To have the fall, and and we hope that you all, as as you're listening, you're enjoying this uh, this season. That that this season feels like you're noticing beauty in spaces that you haven't noticed before. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that normally what we do is offer resources at the end of the podcast, but we wanted to try something to unpack a resource that we found recently that's been really helpful uh, for a lot of leaders understanding different dynamics within churches. We want to offer that here on the front side, just simply because it's going to take a little bit to unpack it um, here. But recently, there's, there's a book uh, by Gary McIntosh called One Size Doesn't Fit All, and this is really helpful. And so this typology of the sizes of different churches can be really helpful if you think about small, medium, and large churches. And by small, that's a small church is 15 to, to about 200 worshipers. A medium-sized church is 200 to 400. 
And then a large church would be 400 worshipers or more. And so there's different orientations and ways to lead and even expectations of the pastor, I think, that are really important. So we just want to briefly unpack that because we think that would be helpful for you all. May say, oh, that's what I feel, or maybe this is what our church needs in this next season. So when you think about a small church, again, 15 to about about 20 people, uh, sorry, 15 to 200 uh, worshipers in a small church, the orientation for a small church is very relational and the leadership resides with key families. Um, The pastor is actually, the primary role of the pastor is to be a lover, to love people well, to shepherd them well, and decisions are often made by the congregation. Uh, But in a medium-sized church of 200 to 400, the orientation is much more programmatic in nature, and where instead of in small churches where leadership happens with key families, this now happens in in committees. And so we sometimes bag committees as being a bad thing, but they can actually serve a helpful purpose at times, not all the time. And instead of the pastor being a lover or a shepherd, the pastor is much more of an administrator in this role. Um, and again, those decisions being made in committees as well. And, um, and, and so then in a large church, the orientation is much more organizational as opposed to uh, programmatical or relational in, in, in orientation. Um, and then the leadership actually is in a few select leaders um, that are making decisions for the whole. And the pastor is seen as leader and less administrator and, and lover or shepherd in that. And where the, the key decisions really are made by the staff and the leaders. Um, but, and it's a staff instead of bivocational or a single pastor in a small church, uh, a medium-sized church would have a pastor with a small staff, but a large church would have a multiple staff uh, on that. So anyway, let me pause there. Any some thoughts on that, Doug? Have you seen yourself in different seasons throughout your your life in those in those structures? Yeah, absolutely. I, I well, some of the things that I, I think are really jumping out to me is really from the perspective of feeling, I feel like as a young pastor, I felt this pressure like I needed to be, a leader, like right away, you know, I, um, and I think maybe even that progression of recognizing of like to move from, from a lover to administrator, to a leader. Mm. I wonder if that's even a journey that a lot of us are on and even realizing too, just to, man, if, if you're a lover and in a small church like that, that's success. That is not, you need to get to this or to that. Right. But I think too, a lot of it just plays into our own gift mix and our strength. And, and I wonder if, if even that helps, like, I, I wish I would have heard this, uh, when I was first a pastor at some huge conference, listening to this guy who's a pastor <laughs> of like 5,000 people talk about what leadership looks like. And here I am, you know, a lowly youth pastor of like 30 kids trying to adopt all these huge leadership structures into this thing and just feeling that pressure. Um, and not that I should just tune them out, but I, I feel like it would have been helpful to to listen from a perspective of, okay, that's his reality. That's mm. not my there's something about acting your age and acting your size and realizing like that's okay it's okay to be there so yeah those are some of the thoughts that i'm um, i guess thinking through right now as we as we look at this and as i hear you talking about it yeah that's good and the idea of of acting your age sometimes you know we would never say to our our child you know at at 6 months like how come you're not running yet <laughs> you know but sometimes i think we do that with churches especially new churches i don't understand why we're not we don't have everything in place and we're not up that we just need to act our age now the other side is true that if a church is been mature and and there for a long time uh you would you would not say to a 16 year old well they they whenever they get around to walking 
you know, that's fine. Crawling has been fine so far. Right. We'd make, we don't want to make them feel uncomfortable and force them to walk or run, right? So that there's a there's certainly growth and development. And we want to be careful to make sure we're communicating that it's not just about growth and getting bigger and larger in terms of numbers. That's not what we're after here. But this is interesting, this typology of different church sizes, what is often the case in North American churches. And so uh, we want to just make sure that we communicate that well. So, you know, sometimes there are are opportunities for growth, right? Healthy things grow and reproduce, um, but not growth for the sake of growth. And so oftentimes small churches, the attraction um, model comes through relationships, right? Elbow to elbow, why don't you just come with me to church? Um, and a medium church, it's medium-sized church is a program model through key ministry that happens. And then a large church is often proclamation model through the word from up front. Uh, and again, there are pros and cons to all of these, but this is just more... Um, uh, descriptive than prescriptive, I think, in nature. Absolutely. And, and then some of those obstacles in a small church uh, is often ineffective evangelism, um, inadequate programming, um, and maybe some ingrown fellowship. Uh, medium church, medium-sized church, some of those growth obstacles sometimes are facilities uh, or an inadequate staff or finances or even poor administration. Um, even as the complexity increases, they don't always know how to handle that. And then large churches, uh, growth obstacles are often poor assimilation, uh, large backdoor, as it's often said, um, increased bureaucracy, poor communication, and maybe even like a lack or a loss of, of membership care. So again, this is a resource uh, if you want to check out more. Uh, Gary McIntosh's book, One Size Doesn't Fit All. Uh, I just found it to be incredibly perceptive. And um, so if it's helpful to you, great. If not, don't worry about it. Just delete it from your memory bank. <laughs> um, but we feel like just having the appropriate expectation going in may help us think healthily and therefore live healthily as pastors. Today's guest is our friend Tom Smith. Tom is a South African pastor who serves in the Johannesburg area with a passion for integrating the world of spiritual formation and mission. He and his wife, Lolly, have been married for several years. They have two children, Taylor and Liam. My wife, Megan, and I had the privilege of knowing Tom and Lolly some uh, 15, almost 20 years ago. Uh, they lived in the United States for three years and came back to South Africa in 2003. And when he came back to South Africa, he planted a church called the Claypot Gimiente, which in Afrikaans means the Claypot community, with a group of friends. And that experiment sprouted uh, into uh, enjoying a community rule of life. Several years later, that experiment has grown into what's called the Rhythms of Life organization that he helped start. He has a passion for the outdoors, for books and great coffee, and he's currently working on his PhD. He's also the author of Raw Spirituality, a book with University Press, and he's also the co-author of the of an Afrikaans book on spiritual formation with his wife Lolly. Enjoy this conversation with our friend Tom Smith. Well, Tom, it's great to be with you, and uh, I know you're joining us from Johannesburg, South Africa, and I've spent time with you all there, but really grateful for you, and sounds like we're in your house there. Uh, you got you have kids in the background. Yeah, that's my neighbors, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I'm not recording in a funky studio. I'm here in the neighborhood, man. So. Which is great. Where you live. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm here in the neighborhood. I've been in now almost going on to five decades. So 
Wow. This is, this is, this is me. That's great. <laughs> no, you be you, which is awesome. So, well, shortly after, uh, you and I met, you had moved to Colorado Springs. Um, there was some overlap there. We were going to the ministry that you and your wife, Lolly were, were overseeing called Pierced Chapel. And, um, you had experienced burnout in South Africa as a pastor and we're coming to kind of heal and recoup and try to listen to the Lord again. I wondered if you'd just be willing to share a little bit of that, how did that burnout experience and then coming to America for three years before returning back to your homeland of South Africa. What was that like? Yeah, it was a really tough season in our lives. Uh, we, we got burned out in a, in a, in a mega church situation in South Africa where, you know, at some point, uh, you know, I had anxiety attacks. Um, it became increasingly difficult for me to focus on Jesus. At some point, you know, my wife and I realized that, um, you know, we, we were basically in a high stressed, almost like a corporate uh, environment that was not conducive for our own spiritual growth. And, uh, you know, our, our going to America was a, a, a deep desire to reroute in the life of Christ. Um, the, the text that came to us was Colossians 2, where Paul writes um, in the letter of Colossians and say that, you know, our faith should be rooted in Christ. And he gives us this beautiful invitation, you know, to, to think how our faith journey started. And Lolly and I just realized that we needed to be rerouted. So uh, we sold everything here in South Africa and we just bought a house eight months before. So it was quite traumatic. It was our first house we owned and, uh, you know, came from a situation where I was the teaching pastor at a you know, fairly large mega church here in South Africa and moved into the basement of a couple there in Colorado. And it was a re, I think, rooting of a bunch of things. You know, um, I suddenly had to figure out my identity uh, in terms of not my ministry performance, but what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Christ. And it was tough. I mean, Lolly and I, you know, we were there in the basement. The, the church we were at was very gracious. Um, they gave us a stipend, which was nice. I, I later on heard that they discussed because we had to give in receipts for our stipend. And later on, I learned that they, uh, they had uh, meetings about this, the, the money we spent with our stipend. Uh, you know, like, wow. is it okay to watch a movie? You know, uh, <laughs> the, the, this was the pre-Netflix days. Netflix <laughs> just started. You, you could get like a little DVD in a Netflix sleeve. <laughs> And I remember at some point someone said, you know, they had this discussion of, is it okay to have this couple, you know, get money from the church to watch movies? <laughs> um, but it was all part of our healing. It was a restoring of our identity, uh, learning what it means to be someone that is not primarily characterized in terms of function. Um, it was a great time for me because, uh, you know, a part of my own anxiety was deeply linked to uh, overuse of technology and being available at all times. 
so not having a cell phone was like wonderful. <laughs> um, um, you know, Lolly and I uh, really came to a point where we could work on our marriage um, and spend time together with that. It was quite, uh, you know, restorative in terms of just our relationship as well. So, yeah, I mean, uh, our basement days, we we fondly think through that still, and I'm still harvesting and trying to learn what some of those lessons were. Um, in that time, uh, you know, I, I wrote a letter uh, to Eugene Peterson uh, because I had a huge crisis of, of uh, ministry. What does ministry mean? And I just blurted everything out on uh in a letter because I read in working the angles that he reads every letter and put our basement telephone number in there. And lo and behold, he phoned me one day. And uh, it, this was still the days where uh, we had the telephone jacks in our modems. <laughs> you remember we had to switch out between the telephone and the modem sometimes. So that little clicky thing broke off. So I answered the phone, and on the other side, it said, hi, this is Eugene Peterson. And I said, to just like, hi, this is Tom. And then that little thing fell out. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I disconnected Eugene Peterson. <laughs> I said to my wife, oh. <laughs> and then um, he, he phoned back, and then he said, listen, um, my publisher is in Colorado. I read your letter. Um, I offered to drive from Colorado to Montana for a coffee date. And he said, listen, I'm coming anyway to Colorado. Why, why don't you uh, think, you know, if, think it through that maybe my wife and I can come two days earlier and come and stay with you. So I remember I made a joke. I said, well, I'll have to pray about that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> obviously immediately said yes. But in that time, you know, they came and visited us. I remember picking them up at the airport there at Colorado Springs. I said to Jan, you must be like one of the bravest ladies I've ever met because how do you know I'm not an axe murderer? And she just smiled and said, just like that. The thought crossed my mind, but axe murderer would probably not lead on with this story. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in... in uh, in in our relationship in our friendship, a lot of the rhythms that I still live out of um, was modeled by the Petersons. Taking time for meals, Sabbath, massive, massive, you know, part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, this was the time when when he was just starting to write th that beautiful series he did on spiritual theology. Christ plays in ten thousand places, so. You know, part of my own conversations at that point, you know, was out of his writing of that book. And what does it mean, you know, to live a life uh, that that is synced in the Trinity? And so, you know, I picked up words in, in, in that uh, mentoring. Well, he didn't like the word mentoring, friendship, um, you know, like rhythm. Uh, what it means to live a graceful life. Um, yeah. So anyway, so, so when we think of America, you know, it, it's a, it's, it was a real restorative space for us and a reconfiguring of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus.
and then you moved you moved back and started Claypot Gemiente, right? Claypot Community. Did I say that right? Gemiente? It's very good. You can, I can hear that you've spent some time in uh, in Israel because <laughs> <laughs> most Americans can't do the <laughs> Right, like, and you, you mentioned Retief Chwesen, right? What Americans call goof, uh, Retief Goosen, right? The goose, but it's really Chwesen, the golfer, right? Chwesen. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you, you've got it down, man. So tell us about Claypot. Yeah, and... Uh, and 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 even the practice. Tell us about the practice of the actual pot with members, the new the new members, clay pot. Yeah. So, um, Lolly and I, you know, we were eight months away from getting green cards in the states. And actually, one my calling back story actually is a golfing story. Mm. Um, every year, there's the million dollar golf. Uh, that's it. It's a very famous South African tournament. And uh, I was there in the States and there was like a delayed um, broadcast of the million dollars and Ernie Els was standing on the tee and he was hitting off and I just heard the birds of Africa and I started crying. Mm. And uh, there was this deep longing of coming back. So so Lolly and I came back uh, in 2003. Um, it was a... a a, a deep sense of calling that brought us back. My dad at that stage was still alive, picked us up at the airport. He, he was a very um, direct man and he, he greeted me and said, you just made the biggest mistake of your life coming back to South Africa because there was a big, uh, you know, immigration story of, of, of white people leaving South Africa so when we came back, uh, Lolly and I prayed about where we should start a church, and we had all kinds of romantic ideas. You know, uh, South Africa has a great coastline <laughs> with amazing towns, but mm. somehow God didn't open up doors there. So we started a, a community in the neighborhood I grew up in. Um, and very early on, you know, we realized that most of us were preoccupied with the question, what is church? And realize that it's really a, a question that deforms us if it becomes a primary question. Um, and so we started wondering what it would look like if we shift the attention away from what is church to who is Jesus and who is this God that we are following. And uh, through that process, uh, you know, we started reading through the Gospels uh, very systematically. For most of us, the first time we didn't cut and paste verses out of the Gospels to fit our theology. And that led us, obviously, into the Pauline writings. And at some point, this image of the, the treasure that is in these broken clay jars just popped out for us. It was funny. I remember we, we had an evening where we talked about metaphors that could capture our journey. So one of the early names of our church was... There's something about Mary. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we uh, you know, the, the clay image sort of chose us. Uh, and, and there was a bunch of reasons for it. But I think the main one was that the, the idea of the broken clay pot is that the focus is not on the pot. It's on the splendid content, the treasure that's inside of the clay jar. 
So we started this ritual in our community that every January, um, all members lost their membership. So it was a fun time to be a pastor every year in January because, <laughs> you know, if you're a pastor, people tend to ask three questions. Um, how many people do you have in your church? Uh, where do you meet? And do you have a very good band? Um, <laughs> and uh, in January, I could basically negate all those questions and say, well, we have no members in January. So the idea uh, in our rhythm um, was that People prayed in January whether this was the community that God sent them to, to, to be active disciples. And then we would actually take a physical clay pot and smash it. And then every member that committed for the year would write a prayer inside of one of the shards. Mm. And then we would come together <clears throat> a week later and... Uh, Every person would, uh, you know, choose an accountability partner or an encourager and write their prayer down. And then we would glue that shards together. And uh, it was always very ugly and disorganized. And, mm. you know, someone would not come and they would have a huge shard and we would have a hole in the pot. Mm. And uh, I remember the first time we did it, we had this very uh, interesting, precise engineer in the group. And he was like, when we glued it together and it looked like ugly, he's like, this is really an ugly pot. It's like, we should, can I go and buy us a new one? <laughs> and then we were like, no, this is us. We're a mess. Mm. But we've got this treasure in this broken vessel. So it became a very strong um, metaphor for us. Uh, that that helped us to understand that the you know that we should get away a bit from our church idolatry. Um, yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. what are some of the idols that churches worship at? When you talk about church idolatry, like what fuels that idolatry? Can we name some of those, or have you named some of those within your community? Yeah, I think um, for. Um, as I now work with a lot of churches, that is obviously a very contextual question. So every, you know, every church has their own toxins that that you know you you have to identify. Um, you know that 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 are basically idolaters, idolatries. For you know, for us, it was a bunch of things. If I can just name a few, you know, the one I already mentioned is you know if if our conversations is primarily the whole time about church and we talk, don't talk about the Trinity or God, mm. you know, what, what we are doing is we are functionalizing and socializing the church in such a sense that, that we actually became our own idols. Um, the derivatives of that, you know, is worshiping a pastor or a celebrity. Um, you know, I think it's something that, that, that kills faith. Um, you know the, you know the the whole passage in in Second Corinthians four about the clay pot. You know, lifts this out. You know, is that we, pastors and leaders are just servants. They and they are, you know, meant to activate other people. So when they get euroed to such an extent that they monopolize the microphone. And, you know, become like cult figures that obviously is really toxic and idolatrous. 
One of the things we uh, had to identify in the first two or three years of our own community was the idol of race, um, that we had to uh, reconfigure the fact that Christianity is really not linked to a specific nation or ethnic group. Hmm. So in our own community, you know, uh, South Africa has 11 la national languages. Um, my first language is Afrikaans, but it's only a small percentage of South Africans that speak Afrikaans, and most of them are uh, white. So part, part of what we had to do was to uh, renounce the idol of of uh, reducing the gospel into a cultural expression. So in our community, in about the second or third year, we shifted our community's language from Afrikaans to English. And that was absolute uh, torture for a lot of people. Wow. Um, we, we lost a third of our members because wow. they said, I want to serve God in my language. Um, which one can understand, but then, you know, we would have conversations like in Johannesburg, if you are uh, involved in any form of commerce, you do it in English. You don't do it in Afrikaans. So people were willing to sacrifice their language for commerce, but not for unity and racial reconciliation. So I think that's a major idol. Obviously, uh, another idol is materialism. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of a lot of church plants or churches, uh, you know, battle through the uh, the challenges of what it means to be good stewards of what God has given us. So in our community, you know, we embrace the fact that we are rich. Um, it was always easy to read scriptures that mention the rich and think of you guys there in America. Yeah, this all these texts are about those Americans. You know? I mean, those are a, a few of them. So, mm -hmm. so you mentioned um, some of those, some of those places for idolatry and and the place of seeing God at work in them, or, or confessing those places. Um, how 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 is the church different, and how's ministry different in U.S. and South Africa? What are some of the the big things that you've noticed? Well, uh, you know, uh, ministry uh, is always contextual. So, you know, in, in terms of diversity, South Africa is an immense diverse culture. Um, so um, part of the, the, the battle, so let me first answer by saying I had to break out of an American bubble in Africa, Ooh. discover South Africa. Um, and let me explain that. Um, in the 90s, uh, through church growth movements, you know, the, the sexy models of church, uh, you know, were propagated into South Africa from the Willow Creeks and the Saddlebacks. And there was almost a colonizing of the church imagination here in South Africa, that that was how you do church. The, the, the problem with that is myriad, um, one of them being that, you know, if you follow a ministry style that focuses on the homogenous unit principle, then here in South Africa, that is called apartheid. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
it took me leaving South Africa and coming back to see that I actually lived the American dream in South Africa for a very long time. Um, <clears throat> so, so the moment, you know, we started engaging with the gospels and specifically with the gospel of Luke. I mean, that <laughs> Luke is a, a gospel that uh, one of my favorite South African theologians, David Bosch, wrote a beautiful book on Luke uh, called Good News for the Poor and the Rich. Um, you know, Luke, the whole time, opens up how there needs to be a conversion between socioeconomical groups. So, you know, South Africa is not just diverse, um, it's also the country in the world that... Um, vies for the position of the most unequal country in the world. So huge disparity between rich and poor. Um, and where in America, I could hide from the poor very easily. Hmm. In South Africa, it's not that easy. You drive any direction 15 minutes from your house and you will be in an informal settlement that was started when people were forcefully removed from their homes under apartheid. A lot of migrant people coming into the cities to get work. So poverty here in South Africa is not something that you can with, you know, you can't, your bubble is very difficult to burst once you've seen it. So, so I think the differences in terms of ministry is that the, um, you know, a lot of times when you go away, your social imagination sort of gets, uh, you know, critiqued and then you come back and then you're like, oh, my gosh. You know, so for, for, for me coming back, you know, seeing the way I've lived all of my life for the reality that it is became like I call it my, my second conversion is to become uh, a disciple in South Africa. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm reading some of the, the, the stuff coming out of the States at the moment. You know, there's a, a definite unsettling happening in, in the U.S. at the moment on a lot of topics. I think that here in South Africa, we can't hide from those topics at all. So... that word discipleship and, and you mentioned before the idea of spiritual formation why do you think so many churches are taking that or, or are not taking that seriously oh yo that's a it's a massive topic um i'll just think i'll think with you guys about it um i think one of them is that we have we are we are battling the effects of a reduction of what the gospel is that was preached for almost three or four decades. Um, when churches, um, I think, started getting a hold of some of the methodology of corporations, they, uh, you know, shrinked the gospel into a very easily disseminating sort of product where you have a little tagline. Uh, which we called the sinner's prayer and Christianity got reduced to that, accept Jesus into your heart so that you could go to heaven. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of our church life surrounded around servicing that, that sort of, uh, narrative. 
And, you know, then, you know, you don't need discipleship. Um, so I think that's one of the, the, one of the reasons. I think another one is that we are still battling huge dualisms and split thinking around the private and the secular, um, what it means to be spiritual and people that are actually enfleshed and, and have bodies, uh, the life of the mind, you know, uh, I think all of those splits that we have, you know, I think we, we are still battling through some of, um, our wholesale sort of, you know, buying of that narrative, which is obviously massively being ruptured worldwide at the moment, um, through, you know, all the isms, um, so I think, you know, spiritual formation or discipleship as a lifelong invitation, you know, is not something that a lot of us grew up with. I didn't grow up with it, you know. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, it hasn't been modeled well. Um, and I would just echo a lot of what you're saying. And, I mean, I don't think we've recovered from from the beginning of Christendom in 300 AD. And uh, I, I mean, the thing that came to mind immediately was it's just easier to live this bifurcated life of church on Sunday and the rest of the week. At least we, at least we think it is mm. in the short term. It is easier, but long term, it just sucks our soul dry. And uh, so I just think it's easier. Or at least we're sold that lie that it's just easy. And therefore America built on comfort, convenience, preference, is a perfect lie to believe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that, that probably is, is what another reason that eh, is that uh, in, in a culture of extreme consumerism, you know, the, the gospel gets reduced into, you know, not the joy of giving up everything, but, uh, you know, the fear of losing anything. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's good. Wow, JR. Uh, so what a blessing. Thank you for sharing your relationship and your friendship with Tom with us today. Man, Tom, uh, I've never had a mediocre conversation with Tom. Like oh there's gosh. always either a funny story or I walk away and just say, man, I've never thought about my relationship with Christ that way. Or, wow, I better be thinking more seriously about how I follow Jesus. Yeah. And and I think that's why we really feel like this is a good two-parter Yes, because it's yes. almost like you're eating a very, very, very rich meal and you need some time to digest. Yeah. And I love that it, we caught him like, there are like kids screaming in the background <laughs> yeah. and yeah. dogs barking. <laughs> and he's just like, this is who I am, which is so true. And he's not trying to live this stale, isolated life. Like he mm-hmm. really just says, welcome to my life. Mm-hmm. And this is who I am. And Jesus is here in this chaos. And uh, so I'm so glad that uh, you were able to, to to see a little bit more of the joy of Tom Smith. Absolutely. And so for those of you listening, we will conclude this interview next Monday. Um, and we can't wait. We'll have resources and all kinds of good stuff and some questions to ponder uh, next, next week. So we'll see you soon.